This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. This week's Spotlight, we're going to be talking about a couple different things. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Hello. Uh, This is Lynn of uh, Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and today we're going to be talking uh, about a subject that's really, I think, immediately relevant. Uh, This is a spotlight, and it's not on an explicitly sexual matter, but uh, actually that of the psychology of epidemics and really individuals and individual uh, responses uh, to the epidemic. Uh, So we're right in the epicenter here, or I am, in San Francisco at the moment, or one of the epicenters. I really credit both China and Italy and Iran and other places for uh, struggling with the same problem. And then you, Jen, you're down in L.A., and they're facing uh, issues related to this, too. Yeah, definitely. One of the things we thought we could begin with is talking a little bit about the psychology of epidemics. We're both, you know, trained in psychology and uh, have a real strong interest in this area. Uh, My last uh, extensive experience with an epidemic uh, was the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. And uh, that had uh, a sizable impact really on my life and the world. Um, So it... um, Uh, brings up, for me, memories of that earlier epidemic and some of the impact. What kind of experience, Jen, have you had, really, with epidemics before? I mean, my experience is more recent. I remember a lot of, like, the SARS scare happening. Um, My background is I'm Chinese, and I'm also, my mom is from Taiwan, which I've talked about before. And I remember going to Taiwan around that time, when the SARS epidemic was so big and the way they were screening and the sense of just kind of panic that was pervading um, the, the airport, really. And, you know, in Taiwan, they already kind of wear those masks a lot of the time because the pollution can be so terrible at times. But, but knowing that the mask was sort of more people were wearing masks because they had this fear about SARS and also not quite understanding what SARS was, but knowing that it was something like terrible that you could catch, I think also played into the sense of panic. And this brings us right into the uh, first symptoms, uh, you know, group symptoms uh, that are really noted around epidemics. And uh, much of this work can be attributed to Philip Strong, who is a sociologist, psychologist, who's done a lot of work in the emotions of epidemics. Uh, So uh, epidemic panic Mm -hmm. and epidemic fear 
And if you're currently experiencing some of these symptoms or see people around you with them, this is all a very normal response to this type of world situation. Mm -hmm. It certainly doesn't feel normal or comfortable, but it is normal. And I think to remember that and to be really aware of that. I think a second area that is really out there is, um, and we see that some in the United States, uh, where there are stigma and suspicion really pointed at others. And you identified yourself as uh, from Taiwan. And, you know, this epidemic has brought up fears that this uh, disease actually came from China. The Chinese brought it. There's a lot of urban and nation legends active at the moment and a lot of negativity toward other groups with the thought, if we can just keep that group away, we won't have this illness kind of thing. Well, I think it's it's part of what happens. So it's tied into what you were talking about earlier, where when people are panicked, what they seek is a sense of safety and control. And so I think by trying to identify somebody who is not like me in certain ways, that provides a kind of psychological protection where it's like, okay, well, only those people are highly susceptible, so I'm okay. But what it does is it ends up isolating us and it also plays up a lot of racial prejudices that we have kind of embedded into our culture. And so I think it's important to really dig at the roots and understand what is it that drives this type of behavior. And even going back a little further is one of the, I think one of the things people don't know maybe as explicitly um, about panic and fear and all of that is that it is part of your fight or flight system in which you are looking to survive a danger. And so the safety seeking is a natural response, as you said. I think what people don't realize, though, is we're not meant, it's not meant to be an enduring state. It's meant to be sort of a momentary experience that helps you get the resources that are going to help you survive or help you make the decisions that are going to help you survive. But when you have something like an epidemic, which is something that is ongoing, maintaining that level of panic actually is not helpful anymore. And it keeps you from being able to think clearly. And and we see that in sort of some of the panic buying, where people are buying things like cases of water, which is what I noticed first down here, is I was just going into, I think, Trader Joe's, I was going to pick something up and I passed by CVS and, you know, just the parking lot, looking in the parking lot, there were all these people who were filling the trunks of their giant SUVs with like cases and cases of water. And if you look at like what what is actually necessary or helpful with the coronavirus, you know, most people aren't going to be having their access to water shut off. So it's not really a logical process that they're following. It's much more panic-driven. And you had mentioned, maybe you can talk more about it too, but how that type of panic affects our ability to assess risk. Well, that is a real area of interest of mine, is that when we're in these anxious states, when the fight-or-flight state's really gone on too long, and our response is overwhelmingly that of fear, that we're really not able to make 
good decisions about what is right in front of us, you know, so we need to really sit down, try to reduce our fear in order to be able to assess the situation in a better way. And we're going to try to talk about that on this podcast, how our listeners could do that really in these moments. But uh, to add on to the hoarding mechanism and the stores, I too had the experience up here where you go to the stores, the toilet paper's being taken, and Safeway had taken on the responsibility of administering one package to each family or individual Uh because they knew that this hoarding process was taking place. So you see that some people are trying to think this through a little bit more organized way. They're trying to reduce their panic Mm -hmm. and to make really better choices with it. Uh, It's interesting, the type of therapy that's used to treat individuals who are in the middle of an epidemic is called control-focused behavioral treatment or therapy. So it's to return the sense of control to the individual so that they can make better choices about and assess the risks that are really right in front of them. What are the things we've got to worry about with this epidemic? Who is at risk? You know, who who is the highest risk in our families? You know, what sort of choices should we make about work? Uh, What about isolating? Does isolating make us more distant from other people? You know, how do we connect when we can't be any closer than six feet? You know, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of things we've got to be thinking about from the more psychological aspect of this epidemic. Yeah, and I I think that's the idea, going back to what you were saying about that sense of control. I think that's part of why people engage in things like panic buying, because it helps them It's a tangible way to look at something that feels like you're doing something. And when we are very anxious, being able to take action can help cut through that anxiety. And yet you want to take measured action, not panicked-based action. So being able to sit back and, and think about like, okay, how am I going to maintain contact with my family members? Well, luckily we have things like FaceTime where we can kind of stay in contact that way, right? And and also to, I think the other thing that is really helpful when I'm working, because I specialize in working with people who have high anxiety, one of the things is actually helping people realize the importance of paying attention to how they carry tension in their body and how they're breathing and how this relates to your ability to stay grounded. So even though it sounds very simple and maybe even very like California to to say this, you know, it it is actually very important because the way our our minds and our bodies are connected our our bodies can only exist in the present and so our mind uses that fact to kind of check in on the state of things when it has these panicked thoughts and so if you're carrying a lot of tension your mind is more likely to hang on to your anxious or anxiety provoking thoughts because it it believes that it's useful and important information and so when you keep listening to the news all day about updates on the coronavirus, like that builds tension in your body, and then you have these anxious narratives in your head. And I think the other piece is realizing, too, that if you aren't challenging the anxious thoughts, then that 
becomes your reality, whether or not those anxious thoughts are actually accurate perceptions. And so it's really important to be able to step back and take that breath and say, okay, well, this is what, you know, my anxiety is telling me. This is what the fear is telling me. And to recognize that just because you're having these fear-based thoughts doesn't automatically make them accurate. And I think that can be challenging if you don't understand the, the process. One of the things it reminds me of, Jen, they talk about false news. Mm-hmm. I think we all have false narratives that we tell ourselves. Yeah. And in an epidemic like this, they really kind of mushroom. We've got all these false narratives that are kind of popping through our mind. And mm-hmm. you're suggesting kind of a body check. Yes. You know, periodically when you start to feel that anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, that you kind of check in with yourself. How would you do that? Let's say you're, you you went and they've taken away all the water at Trader Joe's and your narrative is triggered. And how, how would you do a body check? Well, because, you know, I practice kind of what I preach. Like, I've gotten very good at reading my body, but I know that I carry a lot of tension in my shoulders a lot of the time, and that can lead my neck to be very sore. And so if I check in and notice that my neck is very sore, I will make sure that I'm taking a deeper breath and and um kind of just pausing for a moment and categorizing it. So I'll tell myself within my own head some version of, okay, your neck is really sore, you're carrying a lot of tension, let's take a deep breath and open up some space to see what it is that's causing this. And that buys me enough time and space to realize that I'm functioning off a narrative that I haven't challenged or evaluated yet. And that point is really helpful to me, that you take that really deep breath and you use that as your moment to kind of both relax a bit and then check in with yourself because I think that's something people could really be more aware of and it's also from a physical standpoint healthy breathing Mm -hmm. you know is also physically very helpful and helps you fight off all kinds of things too. It also helps with the narrative because when you're able to change your breath, it's a reminder that things can change. And when we are very fearful, we tend to have thoughts about things that are negative, kind of enduring or lasting forever or lasting longer than we're able to tolerate. And so when you take that deep breath, it's a reminder, kind of a physical reminder that like, this is temporary, I can get through this, and it can actually be a source of confidence for yourself. And I think the breath is so important because you obviously are carrying it with you everywhere. So you're not having to like rely on a tool that is outside of who you are. Yeah. One of the other supports that I use through this is really checking in with friends and family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've used FaceTime a, a lot more Uh, Not only for this podcast, we use FaceTime for this podcast part of it, but I use FaceTime to check in with the younger kids in my family so I can see the little kids, the grandchildren, nieces, nephews, all of that. The picture back and forth is, is very helpful in that interaction. And then also to check in with other family members. Uh, One of my daughters is an uh, infectious disease doctor. 
you know, so she's actively involved in treating and fighting this epidemic. Yeah. And, you know, that brings up a lot of fears. But when I see her face and we talk about what we're making for dinner and how we're going to get through this, that really calms us both down. Mm-hmm. You well, know, I think it's it very also grounding. gives you some perspective, right? It's grounding in that way, because instead of it being just so focused on the coronavirus, it's a reminder that like you're still making food and you still have children and you're still doing all these other things. And so while yes, it is important for us to be doing certain actions like washing our hands when we're in certain situations, you know, like especially because like you go to the gym every day, that's an area where you want to make sure that you are taking precautions. I think it's important for us to step back and remind ourselves like, okay, this isn't our entire life. It isn't this like impending situation. And so how do we make sure we're protecting ourselves and and taking precautions while also not letting it totally derail our lives? Yeah, no, I think that's very, very important. You and I are also seeing our our clients struggle mm-hmm. with different aspects of this epidemic. I have been seeing kids who have come back from uh, college and are not returning because the colleges have been closed down for a number of weeks. And right. that group is is really asking, you know, one particular girl, you know, who I saw last night, you know, she's at a loss. She wants to be back with her school. She's angry that she has to be here in California. She doesn't like seeing people in masks. She doesn't really want her life intruded upon by this. Right. You know, and we, she and I talked about what could her plan be. You know, maybe she could get her driver's license mm-hmm. uh, during this month that she's home. Maybe she could spend time with her 80-year-old father mm-hmm. who she's concerned might die, you know, in this epidemic. Right. So there's a lot of lot of aspects I think about how we can come up with an emotional plan at the same time we're thinking about do we need extra provisions for the home. Right. And I I think that's the important thing to drive home here too is that what can he- what can help cut through some of the panic is figuring out a plan. So our emotion of anxiety our emotion of anxiety gets heightened when we don't have a plan. And it's pretty clear on a national standpoint that there is no real plan in place to handle this. And so I think that makes people panic more. And so when you start focusing on, okay, well, what can I do? What is within control? What is within my control? I mean, that helps people not just kind of sit around and let these thoughts spiral out of control because you're you're moving it in the direction of something that feels productive. And so if you can figure out whether it be, okay, I'm going to call this family member and check in on them, or I'm going to use this time to learn how to drive, like you said, these are things that can help us maintain that sense of balance in a situation that feels very tenuous and uncertain. Yeah, I think uh, we also have to look inside, inside ourselves. We all have different fear narratives that are sparked with these epidemics. And knowing that about ourselves, that we're very fearful about it, 
with this girl that I spoke about, she did not realize how fearful she is about her father dying, Uh you know, and, you know, seeing me and aging, uh, you know, shrink, uh, you know, kind of struggling with aspects of this epidemic. I was wearing a mask at that time that we met and, you know, for all kinds of reasons, that was really hard for her. Mm. That addressed her fear narrative and, Um, On a personal level, my father actually died of AIDS Mm. uh, in the AIDS epidemic through, he he acquired through a blood transfusion. So I had heavy exposure to one epidemic and carry a fear narrative that I too will die of an epidemic. And I think all of us inside, you know, epidemics are powerful things in the world. We have our own fear narrative about this. I have to fight it and say, yeah. I'm taking those precautions. I'm still healthy. Right. There's no reason to think this is going to happen. But we really all have our own fear narrative. And it's really important to look at that now. Well, I think what's so powerful about what you're bringing up, too, is that we all have this fear narrative, but not all of us are aware of the fear narrative that we have. And so, for example, you wearing this mask in session is bringing to light this fear narrative. And the the important thing, how wonderful that it happened within a therapy context, because then you're able to process through and really talk about it and address it. And that's what allows us to shift our relationship to the fear that we carry is when we start addressing it, then we see that like there are different possibilities. We can actually expand our point of view. Whereas when we're not aware of the fear that we have, it may be driving certain behaviors that we do or even certain emotional experiences, but we're not aware of that. And so then we're not able to make active choices about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, you, uh, it helped me today, Jen, when you were talking about one of your patients who couldn't even come to their session. Oh, yeah. Because they were so overwhelmed with their fear. Yeah. And they wanted to make a plan. Right. <laughs> they, they were, right. But their, part of their plan wasn't coming to the therapy with you. It was kind of running around anxiously. Right. And I mean, so I'm never going to pressure somebody to come to their session, right? But I I thought it was kind of interesting that they were canceling the session where we could have worked through their fear in order for them to make whatever plan it is that they're doing on their own. And also because um, this is a client that I see online, it doesn't really matter where they are, we could have that session, right? But What I noticed is they were so caught up in their fear that they were making things more challenging for themselves. So decisions that when you take a step back, take a deep breath, you know, might more readily come to you. In this case, they were canceling because, you know, they had a situation where now they're working from home. They're not sure if they're going to stay in their home or if they're going to go to a relative's home. And they had to figure out, like, where they were going to get groceries. And, you know, typically that's not something that you would cancel your therapy session for. But because there was so much anxiety around making these plans, it seemed like, okay, well, let's just cancel that. That's going to be even more anxiety provoking and i thought that was an interesting reason to cancel 
And it's really that stage you're talking about when individuals are so overwhelmed by anxiety that they really can't think clearly about what they need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and these things we're talking about, checking in with your body and breathing, knowing your own fear narrative, you know, checking in with your close friends and family. All of those things are grounding during mm-hmm. this time and they reduce anxiety. Um, what do you think of this concept, shelter in place? They're now talking about, you know, and I think it's a good one to explore, but it's about how do we make a shelter really in our home environment during a period like this to withstand some of the quarantining and isolation that people are going through? Well, I think it's powerful to use the word shelter because shelter provides that sense of security. And I think that's really important. I think the shelter in place also this sense of, you know, that that you can be at ease somewhere, I think is really important because what shelter does is it provides a space where you can kind of relax. And and so I think it's about realizing too that that it's physical shelter, but it's also kind of an emotional psychological shelter. And so even if it's like lighting a candle or reading a book that you've always loved, like how can you use this experience to bring bring some joy into this experience? Because I think the joy can also cut through the panic, you know, like the the different emotional states don't have to be like, oh, this is a fear thing. Like we're only going to listen to my fear. You can say, okay, well, this is the situation. How can I make the best of it? And so maybe there's a book that you haven't read in a while or there's a recipe you've been wanting to try or, um, you know, different things like that can be grounding. And also I think it's really important to remember that, isolation actually plays up our fears. So how can you find a way to make sure that you're staying connected, whether it be through FaceTime, whether it be through reading a story that like reminds you of your humanity and our connection to other people, or making food for somebody that you care about? Like, how do you make sure that you're investing in things that actually promote connection or a sense of connection? No, that's very important, the food part of this, because we all have to eat, and just like we all have to breathe, and we all have to drink water through this, and um, my uh, partner, Stephen, is actually making, uh, uh, he's not a a gigantic cook, but he's decided he's going to join the program of making healthy soups and stews through this. Oh, nice. So tonight, we're going to have a great stew that he's made, and he's working on all day, and it does provide, you know, soothing and structure and all of those things, connection and comfort with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really important way, I think, to handle fears and to give us back a sense of control in this epidemic. And I think that's the thing is how how can you make sure that you're carving out space for that comfort, right? Because panic can make us focus on a sense of danger And then comfort kind of gets thrown to the side. But comfort is actually what's going to help sustain you during this sense of anxiety. 
One of the other areas I think about is, um, you know, how we can reduce uh, the negative stigma, you know, toward others. Mm -hmm. And uh, how can we, you know, now that I'm a person over 65, you know, I see people kind of looking at me like I might be holding this virus or, mm-hmm. you know, manifesting it. And, you know, and, and a little bit about what you were talking about being seen as Asian at this time and yeah. and the different factors involved with that, that, um, you know, when groups are targeted or seen in a different way, how do we deal with that? How can we reduce those feelings? All of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's such a fascinating aspect because, well, obviously I am Chinese and or Chinese American and I look that way. It's not actually very high on my own personal identity, right? <laughs> but it's a very like physically apparent thing. And so this situation has almost like heightened my sensitivity to it, where when I was at Trader Joe's, Like, I felt like a lot of people were looking at me, even though I don't actually know whether or not, like, they were, I mean, I made eye contact with some of them, so I know they were looking at me, right? But, like, I don't know if they were just looking at me as they would regularly, or if, you know, the fact that I'm Chinese is playing up in their minds. And so, it's a, it's, I don't know that I have, like, a magic solution, but I think it's very interesting to have that brought to the forefront and and to have to think about how to deal with it. And, I mean, I just kind of, like, smiled at the person, which I think is my general way of showing that, like, I am friendly, um, <laughs> you know, and, like, not a threat, I guess. But, like, it's, it's interesting because I, I think – Tying this back even into kind of the sexual piece of our podcast, sometimes there are aspects of our sexuality that are not within our control, but are a way in which we're defined. For example, whether, you know, we are perceived as being masculine or feminine, you know, like this, there are aspects that are within our control, and then there are aspects that are not in our control, and yet it it does matter kind of how other people are relating to you. And I know that there are a lot of different techniques that we use, particularly as women, in order to help ourselves feel safe um, among certain groups of men, for example. And I think it's interesting to see myself defaulting towards some of those things. So, for example, this woman was like, anxiously like dousing her hands in hand sanitizer and asking like why Trader Joe's was out of hand sanitizer (laughs) and then she looked at me and so I wondered about you know oh okay well does is she thinking that like I'm gonna infect her and so then like my default was to just kind of smile at her and like wish her a good day right and I don't know that's like something I would do in a situation where I am uncomfortable around like male or a group of men, for example. And I thought it was interesting that I just kind of defaulted towards that. Well, I think we're thrown a bit. I'm laughing or chuckling through the story, but I think it's something we've all experienced, these awkward interactions really around this. And Mm -hmm. you said something that really resonated with me that we don't uh, and on our own identity lists for ourselves, we often don't see who we are. We don't prioritize certain aspects of it. I don't see myself necessarily as an aging person 
right. wearing a mask going down the street who might be seen as then carrying this right. virus. And you don't see yourself as uh, an infectant from Asia (laughs) going into Trader Joe's. And that's true a lot with women and our bodies and our sexuality that, you know, men or others will make advances or comments and women are jolted by those Mm -hmm. because that's not high on their list necessarily that they're a sexual object. And it's strange when you're pulled into other people's immediate perceptions of you. But both sexuality and ep- epidemics bring out a lot of emotion in people. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of fear with what yeah. is unfamiliar. And so that's sort of what struck me as kind of a big tie in here too, is that I, I see a lot of, well, it may not be treated as like an epidemic per se, but you were talking about AIDS and obviously like thinking that gay people were the cause of AIDS was a big um narrative that was pushed for a while and so i think you can see that was a good example of the crossing of kind of the epidemic part with sexuality and and the panic and all of that that happened and the targeting and all the horrible things that happened as a result of believing these false narratives and and giving in or not giving in but like not recognizing the way in which fear was driving those behaviors Yeah. Well, we could probably make this a very long podcast, but uh, in the interest of uh, really working with our listeners, we'd like to encourage people to really connect with us about areas related to the epidemic and your own personal stories about this, because I think we're all going through it and we're all making our own narrative through this period. And we need support of others to do that. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad that you brought up this topic because I think one, it's so timely, but also it extends so much to other areas. The The lessons and the skills that we're teaching aren't only about dealing with like epidemics, but really about this general sense of emotional contagion where, you know, we pick up other people's fears and then keep that spreading in different ways. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. All right. Thanks, Lynn. Talk to you later.